Welcome to Whitewater Wesleyan Community Church, where we invite you to believe in Jesus, belong to his church, and become like him. Stay tuned for this week's message. Started last week looking at uh, the idea of this uh, kingdom of Jesus that uh, comes, in, and the series is called um, Jigsaw Messiah. So we're looking at the pieces of the Old Testament thousands of years before Jesus came to earth that foretold his coming as the Messiah. And, uh, and the, the clues there of what kind of Messiah he would be. So there are little pieces through, scattered through the Old Testament that will give us a bit of the picture here and there. And we add them up and we get this picture of, of who the expected Messiah of God would be to come and be the hero of his people. And, uh, and of the world. We're uh, picking up that thread in 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and starting at verse 1. When King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who's ever lived on the earth and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they'll never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people in Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings, for when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I'll make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever." So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. May the Lord open his word to our hearts. Have you ever lost your car keys? Show of hands. 
Some people didn't raise their hands. I'm, I'm getting a little concerned about honesty in here. And what do you do? If you lose your car keys, you, just, you, you first say, now where was I since I had them last? And you start retracing your steps, right? And you go back one place after another. Where did I stand? Where might I have put them down? Where could they have fallen out of my pocket? Which couch cushion was I sitting on? What places was I with my keys that we might have gotten separated? And you try to find your keys by doing that. But it's not just keys. If, uh, if you find that money's getting tight and you realize, I don't know where it all went. I don't know where we spent it. You go back through maybe your bank statements. So you go online and look at, uh, at the list of your transactions. And you try to figure out where did we get off track? Like what, where did the money all go? What did we spend it on? What were the big expenses? What were the unexpected things that happened? Where could we have cut some corners so that we could have made it, made it ends meet? <clears throat> and it's the same thing for relationships. If, if we get in a fight with somebody, if we get in an argument at work or uh, in our marriages, if we uh, you know, have a, a disagreement with our spouse, sometimes you go spinning back in your mind and you're going, like, we used to be good. What happened there? Like, what did I say? What did they say? Uh, where did the conversation spin out of control? Or, or what assumptions did I make or did they make? What, what happened that we were good and now we're not good? We try to figure out where things got off track, where we went wrong, own up to our part. And if all else fails and you're the man, you buy flowers. Well, the Israelites were no different than us in that sense. They looked back on their time as a nation and they often went back through history and went tracing back to say, where did we get off track? Where did things go wrong? Where did we kind of lose the plot? Why are things right now not like they used to be with us and God? And as they looked back through their history, there were often moments that there were highlight moments where things went well. There were times when they knew they blew it and, and that they had to correct. But as they looked back uh, from years in the future, they often would reflect on this time of King David. David was one of those figures that kind of was huge in history. He had this kind of charismatic personality. He had a great origin story, right? He's a kid who's a shepherd who uh, fights off the lions and the bears that want to take his sheep. And uh, then there's that great battle where the Israelites are facing the Philistines and this giant is taunting them and nobody wants to go take this huge giant Goliathon and little boy David, little shepherd boy is there hearing him taunt and going, Look, he's making fun of our God. I'll take him on. And they send him out and he goes out with a slingshot and takes the giant down. Like that's an awesome story, right? And they loved that. They, they loved who David was. And, and then as David served in the kingdom, you know, he'd go out to battle and uh, he became a great warrior when he grew up. And it wasn't just, you know, he got lucky once with the slingshot. He went into battle and they'd, King Saul would go in and lead his armies into battle and, and the Israelite armies would prevail and they'd come back into town and people would chant, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. In fact, it's 
started to cause tension between Saul and David. And we've heard those stories recounted from Scripture. And, and David just is this warrior guy, this, this guy that, that God had raised up from a shepherd boy. And eventually he becomes this great warrior that goes out to battle with Saul. And then when Saul's uh, really, as a king, is not done so well, and when God decides to remove Saul as king... David is the one he's chosen to take over the nation of Israel. And he's a good king. He's a great king. He leads them into a time of prosperity where they don't seem to be able to lose the battle and their enemies don't even want to take them on because they're just too good. And so David has always been this figure of success, this hero in battle, this guy that even though he's known as a guy who who after God's own heart, he's also this guy that just is, is rough and ready to go, and he manages to carve out this wonderful time of peace for the nation of Israel. And so the Israelites look back on that time as like the golden time of their kingdom. And they wished for a time when it would be like it was in the good old days with King David. And as they go back through the stories and they recite the stories and they read the scriptures that, uh, that tell the stories about the David, Davidic kingdom, they come to understand this passage and they look at it and they see the promise that there is there. And this encounter that they had with David starts to take on a really significant importance for them. And, and as we look through the passage, you need to understand that in the original language, the word that's translated as house, was uh, used 17 times in this passage. David, it, it tells us they're in this time of peace and everything's great. And, uh, and David starts uh, by you know, saying, I live in this great cedar house or palace it had it in our translation. Because he's not living in a dinky little shack, right? So he's living in this house and he goes, I'm in this huge, gorgeous cedar house and God is living in a tent that's not right like like there's there's this tent this tabernacle that they took with them that represented the presence of God and and when they take the ark of the covenant into battle they'd bring it back after and they put it in the in, in this tent and it was a place where the Israelites could go in and, and and meet with God they could connect with God they could worship they could pray and so they would go, come to use this tabernacle in that way, that it was the place where they connected with God. It was his house. It's where they experienced his presence. And so David says, I'm living in, in a palace and God's in a tent. And that's not, that's not good. Like God is more important than I am and he should have a, a palace too. He, we should build him a temple. And Nathan goes, whatever you got in mind, like you're saying you live in a cedar palace, God's in a tent. Whatever you got in mind, like God's always blessed you, you should go ahead and do whatever you got planned. I'm sure God would be good with it. And then he goes home and he falls asleep and he has this, this uh, meeting with God and God speaks to Nathan as his prophet and he says, you got to go back and tell David, I don't want it. David wants to build me a house. I've never complained about living in a tent. Like I've never said to the leaders of Israel, 
uh, you need to build me a house befitting me. You need to build me a nice palace, a nice temple, a nice house that I can live in that represents my glory. He never said that to him. He says, I've been content to move around from place to place in the tent. Like there's, there's places you can't go that, in a house that you can in a tent, right? Like Roxanne will tell you, there's places we've traveled, beautiful places in the world, most of them in deserts for some reason, because that's my happy place. But, but there's stuff that you can't get close to without traveling in a tent. I would not be able to carry my house on my back. Like, I'm, I'm strong, but not that strong. No, I'm not that strong. But all these times, God's saying, look, David has a house. David wants to build me a house so it looks, I, I don't want it. I, I'm okay with my tent. Like, I'm good. I can move around from place to place. He could be wherever he was needed. And people could meet with him in the tent wherever it was set up. And so God says, I'm not interested in a house right now. David doesn't need to focus on that, but I'm going to build a house for David. Only what he means is a, a dynasty. Like I'm going to build a kingdom for David, but it's not like a physical house. I'm going to build his family line. Like I'm going to, I'm going to give him generation after generation. He's going to hand down the kingship in the way that Saul didn't get to. And so the kingdom is going to go on and on and on, and I'm going to build a house like that for him. He wants to build me a house? No, no, I'm going to build him a house. Go tell David. And so God makes him this promise. He tells him that, that he's going to build him a house, a kingdom that will last forever, that that David's descendant will be on a permanent throne and that uh, God himself will be called the father of this descendant and that the descendant will be called his son. Like, I'll, I'll be his dad and he'll be my child. I'll be the father, he'll be the son. And that he'll destroy all of this son's enemies. And so you can understand why the Israelite people who are looking for a hero, who've heard the stories of Daniel and, and those prophecies, all that weirdness, but there was going to come a hero, a Messiah, uh, who would, in that vision, was called the Son of God, that, that they started to picture a David-like king. They're like, if you're telling me God's going to call him his own son, and, and he's going to sit on a kingdom forever, and he's going to be a descendant of David, we know what David's like, and, and if his offspring are anything like him— this guy's going to be a really mighty warrior. He's going to be such a warrior that nobody's going to be able to take over his kingdom. Nobody will be a threat to him. His kingdom will outlast every enemy he has, and it will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what this kingdom will look like. And so they picture this king that would come, this son of, of God that would come, that would be a mighty warrior, a giant killer like David, a, a guy who, who's able to, you know, go into battle and take out tens of thousands. And that he would lead the kingdom back to this time of prosperity and, and peace and rest and safety. And they wouldn't have to worry about anybody trying to take him on because everything would be just like it was back in David's day. And they began to understand this promise 
as a, as a covenant that God was making with his people. The same way that God had made a covenant with Abraham and told Abraham, hey, I'll, I'll bless you and, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed you and your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sand. The way that God had promised that and made a, a deal, a covenant with, with Abraham and, and the way that God had, had then followed up with a covenant with Moses and, and given details of that covenant and said, look, I, I'm going to look after you guys and this is what it means for me to be your God and this is what it means for you to be my people. These are some things that you need to do for your part of this and, and we're going to be a people. And, and God gave them the, the Ten Commandments and, and he led them to know what it was to be in relationship with God, what it was to represent God to the rest of the world. So that God would always bless them, but he would bless them so that they could be a blessing and pull other people into his kingdom. And so the same way there was a covenant deal with Abraham and then with Moses, they came to understand that, that God was making a, a sacred covenant with David. He was promising David something and God was always good to his promise. And so here... We find that God's promise is of another little picture of the Messiah. The hero of Daniel who would bring things back to better days was now being described as the, the, the one who God would call his own son. And of course, us as Christians, we, we hear this passage and we look at it through the lens of the New Testament. And especially when it says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And, and it talks of an eternal kingdom that will go on forever. We think of Jesus, right? Couldn't be more obvious that Jesus is the one. He's the son of God. He's the one that brings the kingdom that lasts forever. And we look at the New Testament, all the stories of Jesus and the way that Jesus went around. He said the kingdom of heaven is like, like the kingdom of God looks like this. Let me tell you how that works. And then when he taught his disciples, when they, when they asked him, teach us to pray, he says, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus tells them, look, there's a kingdom of heaven and God's will gets done there. And what we want is that kind of kingdom where God is in charge. And where things go according to God's will. That's what we're trying to bring as a people. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us to do, is to live out God's kingdom here just like it is in heaven. And so he keeps talking about the kingdom. He keeps showing them the kingdom. He keeps describing in, in pictures and stories what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so God's promise is uh, that he will, he will bless them and, and that he'll give them a Messiah who is to fulfill this prophecy and that, that the Messiah will be the one who will come and bring the kingdom. And that this kingdom will follow in the line of David and it's never going to end. So God's promise is, furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants and your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, 
and I will secure his royal throne forever. I'll be his father, he'll be my son. And so we can understand that far what it's saying, but then the next line seems to go in a different direction. It says, if he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor won't be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. So again, back on track. So what is this bit in there about correcting this son from sin? That doesn't sound like Jesus at all, right? Jesus was sinless. We know he didn't sin and that God knew that and that he was God. But if you understand the passage in context, if, if we read it through and you read what he's saying there, there's this prophecy and there's this kingdom, there's this house, there's this dynasty that God is promising to build for King David. And he's telling him, I, I'm, your descendants are going to be this household, this house that lasts forever. And he says, my favor won't be taken from you. Uh, and he says, that it'll, it'll last forever. But he says, I, he says that he's going to build this house. And uh, he says, I'll, I'll make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. Now we know that there was a temple built, right? In Jerusalem. And we know that it was built by Solomon, who was David's son. Solomon was a king, and he was the king that David handed down the kingdom to. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I'll be his father. He'll be my son. So really what's happening there is, is he's describing the entire family line. He says, he, David's descendant, which is Solomon, will build a temple for my name, and I'll secure his royal throne forever. The kingdom will go on forever. And then it says, I'll be his father and he'll be my son. But that sounds like Jesus. Because this, this temple, this dynasty, it begins with Solomon and then it follows through to, to, to Jesus. And so we as Christians understand because of the New Testament, they take this passage and they understand it as, as talking about Jesus. That when it says that I'll be his father and he'll be my son. They understand it. Clearly the disciples understood it that way. And just in case you're tempted to say, well, yeah, but they obviously conveniently left out that sin part and, and they're just trying to, you know, take what fits their message and make it fit Jesus. But the ancient Israelites too began to look at this passage and even though they didn't understand Jesus to be the Messiah, they took this to mean a different king that would carry things on forever. That, that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Solomon lived and he ruled, but then he died. And the kingdom was handed on to another king and then another king. And so this kingdom that, that God promises to David, he'll continue forever. He says it'll go on forever. But the only way a kingdom can go on to etern into eternity is that it has to eventually have a king that can last long enough to keep it going. And so it begins with Solomon, but then it reaches the pinnacle with God's son living forever. And we know that's Jesus. 
And so the he isn't the same he in every one of these sentences. One is, is Solomon who built the temple. One is Jesus the, who is the son of the father, God. And then if he sins, I'll correct him. That's speaking about the kings in this dynasty. That, that they don't get, just get a free pass. That if they sin, God will look after that. He'll punish that. But he says, but I'll never write them off. This kingdom is, is eventually going to go on forever. It'll continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. He tells David, I'll make you famous. And then when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, you know, they're taking that, they, they, it's taken as a sign of his royalty. It's, it's taken as fulfillment of a prophecy, and he rides in as king. And he's a descendant of David. He falls within David's family line. And Matthew's gospel in particular, talking to Jewish believers, says, look, you got to understand, uh, to the Israelites, you got to understand, Jesus fulfills all of this. Like, Jesus is it. We've been waiting for a Messiah, and, and this guy, Jesus, he's everything we've been looking for. He fulfills all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so they paint, he paints this picture for his own people saying, you've got to understand, you have to accept this. This is the truth. He's the one. And so they had this picture of a king that would never die, that would last into eternity. A king that would come in David's line. A king that would be in some way like David. And they interpret son of God being metaphorical, kind of the same way that we say we are adopted into the family of God and, and we are God's children. But they don't understand the full weight of what it means. But Matthew and his, uh, his fellow disciples, they go, no, it's, it's more than that. Like when they, when they talk about son of God, they're just not saying he's in God's vein or he came from God or, or he's a messenger or a hero from God. He's God. He's the son of God, literally. And so they're looking for a Messiah and they're looking for a hero that'll come. They're looking for somebody like David that'll ride into battle and, and take on his enemies and bring them into peace and prosperity by force. Somebody will fight for their freedom and fight for their peace and will swing a sword and ride a horse and, and, and go out there and win the day. And so it's kind of no surprise that they kind of miss the plot and when Jesus comes and he's born in a barn and he grows up to walk around and teach people about love and peace and he never ever raises an army and he never goes to war he never fights a single battle. And in fact, in the end, when a, when a battalion comes to take him and arrest him and crucify him, the only one who stands up with anything close to a sword is Peter. And he pulls out a dagger and he's ready to take on a whole battalion all by himself. Like that's how strongly he believes Jesus is the Messiah. And when he strikes out to take on all of these guys... <clears throat> he manages to cut one guy's ear, the high priest servant. He cuts his ear off. And even that, Jesus says, no, no, that's not how we're doing this. And he reaches out and undoes the one little bit of damage his army could do. He's not the kind of king they're looking for. 
And the truth be told, he's not always the kind of king we're looking for. Sometimes we wish that he would use his power differently, that he would lean into all that power and he would just force the world to follow his will and that he'd take out all of our enemies and make sure they couldn't touch us and give us peace and rest and everything would be fine. Nobody would bother messing with his people because he would just take them on. And they expected that kind of hero. They expected that kind of Messiah. And Jesus was a complete surprise to them. Daniel had seen a vision of one like a son of man. And it emphasized Jesus' humanity. And, and even though Jesus was human, he was able to take care of all the beasts of Revelation. He was both things at the same time. He was the son of man, and yet he had all the power of the universe. And here, in this passage, God promises to David that he will send one who will be called his son. He'll be called the son of God. And yet, they miss in the prophecy that the kind of God he's the son of is the kind of God who isn't interested in the pomp and the ceremony and the big house. He says, I'm good in a tent. I want to meet with people where they are. I don't need the hoopla. I want to be among the people. And he promises David he will give him a kingdom that will last forever. But we come to understand from everything that Jesus teaches us that his kingdom doesn't look like any kingdom we have ever seen. And we think of kings as people who get to do whatever they want and get to rule the day and have their way, especially by might and protected by an army. But King Jesus humbles himself and he allows himself to be reduced to being born in a barn and chased out of his country for fear of death. And he walks around the countryside and he never raises an army and he never goes to battle and he never fights. Because he won't use that kind of power to force his will. Instead, he comes and he teaches his people, his kingdom, to live by love and to fight the hate around them. Not by fighting back with other hate, but by fighting it by loving He's not like any king they expected. He's not like any Messiah they were looking for. And sometimes we may not recognize the things he does as the best way to go about things. Our God sends his son and he's the son of man in, in Daniel's vision and he's the son of God promised to David's line. He's fully God and he's fully man and he defies our expectations and he does things we don't expect and he defies the image we make when we make up what we think he's like And the scriptures challenge us 
to put aside our own notions and encounter him as he is, to see who he reveals himself to be. And he's not just the son of God and he's not just the son of man. And he doesn't always do what we're looking for, but he's better than any hero we've ever seen. He's not always the hero we're looking for, but he is the hero we need. And he doesn't come to fit into our preconceived notion of what he should be. But he defies our expectations. And he steps into our world and he builds his kingdom in ways we could not have seen coming. The way he does things is so much better than we could have thought up. And the way he changes things is so much more powerful than any sword-wielding warrior we have ever seen. He is a hero worthy of worship. And he is the son of God. Let's pray together. This morning, Lord, as we look at this passage and add this to the picture that uh, you revealed through centuries, bit by bit, to allow your people to see what you were like, we realize that they missed it sometimes. That there were details they latched onto and, and anticipated, and there were things that they overlooked. And we confess that sometimes... We understand some things about you, but we do not fully comprehend who you are. That sometimes as your people, we miss the plot and we wish you would do it differently. And we expect something different than we encounter when we truly encounter you. Help us to be receptive to your coming. Help us to understand that your kingdom is still coming, that it came and it is still coming among us. That you are still showing up and moving into our neighborhood. And that you are still a God who puts on flesh, human flesh, our flesh. And that you move into the neighborhood through your people, that you move in through us. And that where we go and we take your presence with us. Help us to be the kind of people who live out your kingdom. And allow your spirit to move into our lives and shape us in such a way that we show who you really are. And not the image people have of you. Help us to continue to learn from you. And to grow in your likeness. So that your kingdom is brought to bear on our world. There has never been a time when we needed you more. Help us to be your people. And to realize that you are our God. Not the one we might have anticipated. But so much better than that. Be with us as we celebrate this Christmas, Lord Jesus. Come and live in us and through us so that the world around us can see. We pray in your name. Amen.